Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week both involve deadly love triangles. You remember the yoga teacher accused of murdering a pro cyclist who had an affair with her boyfriend? and then she fled to Costa Rica and avoided capture for nearly six weeks? Well, her trial started this week, but she almost got away again. She managed to get out of custody and run away days before trial was set to begin. But first, a British woman receives India's harshest punishment after a conviction for the murder of her husband, while the murder was unspeakably evil, occurring in front of their nine-year-old son. The judge took special offense at how the woman treated her mother-in-law during the trial and made her pay for that at sentencing. The judge said that he did it for all the mothers out there. The defense shot back saying, if we hanged every woman in India for abusing her mother-in-law, there wouldn't be many of them left. We are recording this on Wednesday, November 1st of 2023. Our guest today is Mike King, a former police investigator specializing in profiling and mapping, an author of two books and host of Profiling Evil, the podcast and the YouTube show. Welcome, Mike. How are you? I am well, Anna, and thanks so much for letting me come back. I just love the chance to be here. Oh, my gosh. You know, every time I turn on court TV or, frankly, any crime show, I see you. So I don't even know how you have time to join us on the podcast when you're so busy, Mike. There would be nothing that would get in the way of being on this show with you. I think this is great. And I I know there are big things happening uh, on True Crime Daily. So thanks again. Yes, yes. We're Before we get to our cases, we just want to let everyone know that this is like a really huge day because we are going to have one of you, one of our subscribers, one of our listeners going to join us later in this podcast during the comments section. Remember, we said we wanted to celebrate um, hitting the 5 million subscriber mark on YouTube, and we wanted to celebrate with one of you. So we're going to have one of you on. I'm so excited. She's a semi-professional badminton player who listens to us as she's driving to and from practice every week. I love it. That is really fun, isn't it? I can't wait to hear what she has to say. And and congratulations. I mean, holy cow, what a milestone. Five million. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I thank 
all of you, all of you. I don't take you for granted. Um, I know that you make time for us every week and I'm truly appreciative of that. And I hope that you feel appreciated. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let us get to our cases this week because, you know, these are very serious topics that we discuss and they both involve these cases, love triangles. I say it on every podcast that involves a, a love triangle. I say it on 2020. I say it to anybody who interviews me. I say, love triangles never end well, people. Never end well. And the ones we hear about on True Crime Daily end in murder. It's just, it's, it's horrific. It's a really serious thing because the thing, Mike, is when it comes to like these love triangles and the revelation that your loved one has been cheating on you, you don't know how someone is going to react to that level of betrayal. It's, it's a little different than stealing money. This is stealing your heart. It's Exactly. And I'll tell you, it's so troubling to me, the fact that it creates this sense of distrust in every angle of your life. You start looking at your finances. You start, I'm not speaking from experience, by the way, but just from what I've studied on this thing, you're looking at your finances, your, your core of, of friends. You're looking at people that your companion is speaking to. You then start violating rights of sneaking into looking at phones and computers. And and holy cow, the paranoia must be intense as it comes to revelation for the person who's being cheated on. But imagine looking over your shoulder constantly if you're the one doing the cheating. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to our first case, which is out of India. And this one caught my attention because it's really very unusual about the justice part of it. The crime is horrific, but it's what the judge did in sentencing um, this convicted killer, the, the wife here, because he didn't like the way she was acting during the trial and found her so so mean and disrespectful and vicious to her mother-in-law, you know, the woman whose son has been murdered. I found that so fascinating that even in his ruling for sentencing, he addressed it. You know, and you think about the U.S. versus, I guess, India in this particular case. Number one, that kind of nonsense would never be introduced as reasons for punishment. It's the perfect appeal, if anything else. And uh, and to allow the emotion to come into this case, there were enough horrendous things in this case alone without having to even bring that up. And I'm still scratching my head, Anna. I'm so glad we're covering it. Yeah, I, I really am fascinated by this case because, you know, India also does things very differently. Like we have perp walks here and that's when you see the suspect, you know, either being handcuffed or with all the chains as the man or the woman is being moved from, let's say, one facility to a car, from a car to a courthouse. In India and in some other countries, they take the perp walk to a whole other level where they little, literally parade the suspects out. And they did that in this case uh, with this woman and her lover. Uh, they were both accused of murdering her husband. Um, both have been convicted. So it's it's just, it's a different approach. And here's the other thing. I mean, when we talk about Indian women's rights, especially, you know, th this is not one of the top countries that respects women's rights here. Um, Again, this is a very interesting case. Very interesting case. Let's let's get to it. So the wife is the convicted killer here. She's 38-year-old Ramandeep Kaur Man, who is facing death 
by hanging for the murder of her husband, who was 34 years old at the time, Sukit Singh. Now, the murder took place in September of 2016. It's been some time to get this case to trial. Uh, The couple from Derby, England, they were visiting his mother, the husband's mother in India. They were here for a month-long holiday and uh, specifically in the Banda area of India. And the couple took their two sons with them on this holiday, two boys, ages six and nine. Now, Ramandeep and Sukhit were married in 2005, and they lived in um, Derby with their kids. He was a truck driver, and police say that the wife was having an affair with the husband's best friend, his best mate since school. You know this is trouble. No good could come of this. You're shaking your head for those of you who are, for those of you listening, Mike is shaking his head. Yeah, I mean, why does it always have to be this way too? Again, you talked. I talked about trust in the very beginning. Imagine someone that's a lifelong friend now being involved in this. Yes, this is a very messy love triangle. The best friend here, who's the lover, is Gurpreet Singh. And he was going to meet up with the family during this month-long holiday. Not not unusual, right? If you're the best friend, uh, it's not unusual to visit the family and your buddy. So the affair between the wife and the best friend began a year earlier when they all vacationed in Dubai. After this... After the affair began, the two, the lover and the wife, continued their communication secretly through WhatsApp. Now, the wife's version of events here is that she asked her husband for a divorce and that he refused. Ramandeep said that her husband was a devout Sikh, and while the religion does allow for divorce, he insisted that marriage was way too, you know, that marriage is something that is very serious, we must work on it, and he was not willing to divorce. Now, prosecutor said, yeah, that really wasn't the issue. The issue was that Ramandeep, the wife here, was motivated not only to be with her lover, but to collect $2 million in a life insurance policy and $100,000 in assets, that that was the motivation. Yeah, and and 2 million British pounds, so kind of inch the the dollars up even a little more and and i'm wondering how on earth did she get a life insurance policy that huge on him without him knowing so that couldn't have been too much of a surprise because i would have thought there would be at least some kind of health questionnaire in order for him to do that but uh, again that we start to see money as the motivator behind all these things and maybe not even as much about love as money as we learn more and more about kind of her personality and how she likes to glitz it up yeah this is so troubling it's because you know again there are children involved here and their their family is about to be torn apart in the most horrific way father murdered mother about to be hanged that's it and the fact that the oldest son witnessed what happened to his father and testified against his mother oh the amount of trauma that has been forced upon these children based on the selfish acts of of this mother not you know, yeah, and, and Anna, you talked a little bit about this exploitive nature of of the perp walk, where they put these defendants in front of uh, the public. They 
they almost pose like a someone who's been on a trophy deer hunt with with their prize police and, and prosecutors around them. And uh, and you see all of this going on. But then I was really troubled as I thought about um, an image I saw from the Daily Mail that was taken at the crime scene where police are looking at the body and go yes. ahead. I mean, finish this. No, one no, out. no. You finish, Mike. I agree with you. It was so traumatizing to me to think of this six-year-old and nine-year-old child standing in the room while mom's sitting on the bed with her legs kind of tucked up behind her, and they're all looking at the dead body with the police. I'm thinking, and this wasn't someone who died in their sleep from natural causes. This was a brutal murder. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, they ended up slitting his throat. Horrific, horrific, horrific crime. So um, police say that the family trip to India was part of the premeditated act of this murder. It, it, the reason is the police claimed, and this came out in court, that the wife and the lover believed that if they committed the crime in India, they would have a better chance of getting away with it because they were planning to bribe their way out of paying for the crime. Isn't, isn't this crazy? And, and, yes. and number one, if you're gonna if you're gonna sedate somebody and then smother them with a pillow, do you really need to slit their throat and reduce your chances of getting away with murder? I mean, the whole thing is crazy, and it kind of shows something we talk about a lot, and that was how organized criminals, organized thought processes, once an event starts to unfold and the adrenaline starts pumping, can quickly become disorganized. And thankfully, that happens because it leads to evidence that can allow us to convict people of murder. One bad decision after another, by no means supporting the right way to carry out a murder. But clearly, none of this made sense. I mean, none of this made sense. And fortunately, it made it possible for the police to gather evidence. Now, she has said, the wife has said the whole time and has said through her defense that she was set up and, you know, she didn't get a fair trial. She's been really complaining about her conditions because she's in an art, one of these really old, like we're talking 200 year old uh, prison from the time of British rule. And she says the conditions are horrific. Hello, <laughs> what, what, what are you expecting? The Marriott? What? <laughs> Yeah, and and looking at those conditions, it is kind of horrifying to think about that. I, I saw one report that said fifty-five pe women in one cell, and they're they're sleeping on the floor. That's a big jump from the fantasy life that she was living to the realities of where she is today, and probably what her future will look like. That's right. That is right. Okay, let's get. Can I ask you one thing, Anna? Yeah. I was really kind of troubled too. I mean, I, you know how I like I like to look into the behavior of these crimes, and and um, what I'm seeing are reports out there that suggest that the husband may have confronted her about this affair that was going on, even as much as uh, weeks before the murder. If that's the case, why is the boyfriend invited to come on a family trip again? Oh because I think the husband had a few choice words for the for the best friend. That's what I would think. Yeah, maybe so. That, 
That's what I think. I think if you, or two things, either the husband who's suspicious of the wife and, you know, confronts her. The question is, did the husband know that the other man was the best friend? So if he didn't know, then of course the best friend is coming. And if he did know that it was the best friend, then I think he wants to talk to his best friend about what the hell have you been doing with my wife? I know I wouldn't want to confront my best friend about it. I mean, maybe you would yeah. say, I don't want to see you here. I don't want you to come here. But maybe he wanted to talk to the guy face to face. I don't know. Yeah. That's why I love true crime. Because <laughs> it's all about human nature and yeah. human behavior. And everyone reacts to situations differently. And I'm always so curious and sometimes perplexed by the reactions, what the choices that people make. Like, what would I do in that situation? I don't, I don't know if I would confront my best friend or maybe I'd get her on the phone right away is what I would, I don't know what I would do. I, I don't know. It's interesting because it makes me think back, and this is dating myself, but to the uh, Kaczynski Unabomber case. And uh, I remember Dr. Fred Cowley saying to me one night, as I said, it's just not making sense, doc. And he said, it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes perfect sense to them at the moment they're doing it, which is yes. an interesting angle. Yes, yes, that's just it. And that's the fascinating part. The, or, and for me, the disconnect, to not be able to cross over, to see it through their eyes. It's so hard. Yeah. Let's get to September 2nd of 2016. Police say Raman Deep, now this is the day of the murder, Raman Deep drugged the entire family by lacing a dish of curry birani as opposed to maybe just, I'm not going to say poisoning, but drugging certain individuals. It's like whoever eats the dish, they're all going to become sedated. And I guess the whole point was, sedate, was to sedate everyone so they would be kind of groggy, go to sleep early, and they could carry out the murder. Why carry out the murder in the home? This is the part I don't get. What I, I think another location would have been better, but again, so that was the plan. And who is the one person who did not eat this dish? Yeah, if you're if you're in a bad relationship and somebody's serving you something, maybe you should ask them to try it first. Right, right. Well, everyone had it except for the oldest boy, the nine-year-old. He didn't remember, and he witnessed what happened. So and mom, obviously. Oh, of course, mom. Mom needed to keep her wits about her. For heaven's sake, she's yeah. about to kill her husband. So she needs to be focused like a laser beam here. Yeah, the okay. little boy was having like uh, kind of a tummy ache or something, which uh, may have created a witness to solve this whole thing. Absolutely. One that she did not count on. And maybe she didn't expect her son to betray her. I don't know. What do you think if you're killing her father, his father in front of him? What other choice does this little boy have? Well, but yeah, in such, a, in such a patriarchal society, too. To go in thinking he wouldn't turn on her unless there was some systemic abuse or something going on in the family and and it was orchestrated in some way to do that. But uh, even the response we're seeing since then, it very much is about the patriarch in the home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So by 10 p.m. that night, most everyone was asleep and police say Ramadeep let her lover, the best friend, into the home. The pair went upstairs to the bedroom where the husband was sleeping 
And the husband was sleeping and his two boys were also on the bed. But I guess they just assumed that the boys were sleeping and wouldn't wake. So the first attempt to kill the husband was by trying to smother him with a pillow. And for whatever reason, they got frustrated with that. And so Gurpreet, this would be the best friend and lover, slit his best friend's throat with a butcher knife that he brought to the home, say police. According to reports, Sukit was killed instantly, as one would think, bleeding out. Can you imagine next to your two sons? No, and and you go you go back down. Look at this from a behavioral perspective, and the smothering could have accomplished the the job. I mean, I think maybe so. not with a pillow. Maybe you have to put your hands on their mouth and nose. But if he's sedated, they could have pulled this thing off. So it really teaches us a little bit about what was going on in the dynamic of the relationship and the anger involved, and whether she was. Uh, in some way encouraging or he was just acting out anger that he he felt um, it, it again takes me away from this idea that it wasn't all about money could have been but there was a whole lot of anger involved in that murder yeah and you know the whole concept of he refused to give her a divorce well they're British citizens so they would be subject to to British law, because they're British citizens, and she could just file for divorce and be done with it. Exactly. There, there was an easier path. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's probably why police are saying, look, we're just not buying that story. There's so much more to this. Um, now, amazing. She would have got away with this, in my opinion, if they hadn't pulled that knife out and, and uh, did this. They could have got away with uh, him just dying of natural causes in some way. Again, I don't know what forensically the uh, police would have done in that location, but chances are they could have they could have snuck one by. But uh, holy cow, you, you kind of change the whole fabric. And then, of course, this child waking up. What an absolute nightmare. It is. I think I think you're right there that they probably could have slipped this one by or in that case, this plan of theirs to bribe there you go. Police officials maybe would have worked in that case where it was like, well, you know, but you can't turn your head from some from this kind of a murder. And to do it in front of children is, I think, just makes it obviously that much worse. So the whole plan was that these two were, were going to run away. So here's how that went down. The, the wife was still around, but she was planning her getaway. The lover made it as far as the airport. He was headed back to Dubai when police picked him up at the airport and held him because clearly he was also under suspicion. This case made huge news in India. Top story for years because it's it it's it's horrific, it's graphic, it's disturbing, it's it's everything you you can imagine. So the trial itself was also explosive because here you now have a young man who's 16, her oldest son, a 16-year-old testifying against his mother about murdering his father. So, huge case. Oh here is what the 16-year-old said. Quote, my dad was great, but my mom was bad. 
and I don't want to see her face ever because she killed my dad in front of my eyes. She kept a pillow on my dad's face and asked Gurpreet to slit his throat. Well, that's it. <laughs> there, there you see now how she was tied and tied to the, the actual homicide itself by instructing her lover to go through with this while she held the pillow on his face. And why she still got that pillow there? Is it because she's trying to keep from looking into his face, turn him into an object rather than this human that she created some form of a life with, or was, was it really an attempt to smother him and it just wasn't working? I don't It's, I don't know. I don't know if she wanted to be in Dubai with her lover. And that was the most important thing, which clearly was because I don't believe that she was considering the welfare of her two children based on her actions. Then she just should have run away to Dubai to be with this guy and be done with it. Be done with it. It would still be a traumatic experience for those children and for the husband. But I think one they could work through a little bit better. (laughs) I would agree with that. Oh, yeah. goodness. So A lifetime the, of injury now for those children. A lifetime children. of injury. And no one doing this trauma. No one doing it. Yeah. So throughout the trial, Ramdeep verbally attacked her mother-in-law. Now, the mother-in-law is one of the victims here, along with the children. Her son has been brutally murdered in her home by her daughter-in-law. And her grandchildren saw this. So, you know, even the defense attorney... Even Ramdeep's attorney said, yeah, she, she was abusive to the mother-in-law who was clearly grieving. So she didn't win any points with the court. I get that. You know, we'll have all sorts of defendants who do horrific things during trials, which honestly do not do themselves any favors, especially if they, you know, don't show any remorse and so on. And, and yes, that to a degree discount in sentencing, sentencing, which is the discretion of the judge. I get that. But what's just so fascinating is that her, um, um, the way she treated the mother-in-law just undid the judge. So Ramdeep was found guilty and sentenced to death last month. In a 75-page ruling, the judge cited Ramdeep's harassment of the victim's mother during the trial. And I guess, Mike, isn't that maybe the equivalent of not showing remorse and being difficult during a trial here, that you would take note of that at sentencing? We've heard judges, you know, speak to defendants about that. I I don't have a bit of a problem with a judge saying your demeanor in court or your, your personalized attacks or things like that were troubling throughout uh, this this entire court proceeding. I guess what I have trouble with is when it becomes part of the sentence. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. I, I actually, I want to hear from all of you. What do you all think? Do you believe that her actions in court should be taken into account at the time of sentencing? Just curious. I'm really curious here. So in India, the death penalty apparently is rarely used and it's reserved for the most heinous of offenses. In the ruling, the judge also cited Ramdeep's lack of remorse, which is important. Judges do consider that. And this to me was the most fascinating and the unlikely chance of rehabilitation. (laughs) The judge is like, yeah, this, this woman, she's not changing. So the judge concluded, quote, 
she should be given capital punishment because if she is not given strict punishment, then every mother would think a thousand times before admitting her daughter-in-law into the home. Bum bum, bam. <laughs> is that something? It would have been hard not to uh, to smile, at least in that courtroom. Again, I'm thinking, judge, you have someone who, if everything sounds the way it sounds to me, planned out a homicide that that she put a life insurance policy in place in order to uh, benefit and profit from it, that she picked a location where she thought she could get away with murder. And if it didn't work, she could use some of the money she earned in the murder to buy her way out of the country. And then she purposely drugged the food of the family, everyone but herself, in hopes that they would all be asleep and that she could smother her husband. And when the smothering didn't work, by all accounts, she gets her boyfriend to sneak into the house with a knife that he brings to the scene, which means he didn't come there with the idea that they were going to just kiss on the balcony. He came there to commit a murder. That to me is aggravating enough. You don't need to hear the fact that they don't like each other at the, at the parental level. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that he's doing it for every mother out there. Otherwise they will be afraid of letting their daughter-in-law in the door that he has got to set the tone for every mother-in-law and protector in India for fear of whom I walk in the door that it could be a killer. I'm like, wow, that's a really broad, broad way of looking at this one crime affecting one family. It was so interesting to me. Now, the attorneys for Ramdeep have appealed this death sentence. And I think, Mike, you you kind of laid out the whole case there. So if you say that you will hang someone, sentence them to death based on how egregious a case is, on those standards in this community, I believe that's probably enough. I don't think the whole mother-in-law is what tipped it over. You know, being mean to the mother-in-law, I don't think tipped the scales in favor of a hanging here for this convicted killer. But I think the fact that the judge said that, it could be very interesting to see what the upper courts think as this is appealed because um, her attorneys are like, we're appealing this. Judge is totally out of line in including that in his sentencing decision. And they're thinking, well, maybe at the very least, she's likely never, she's never going to walk, but maybe she'll get life in prison. And that's what they're trying to do. They just say the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, you cannot. And then their comment, which I shared at the top of the podcast about, boy, if that's the threshold that we're going to have here, that, you know, you're going to, you're going to hang every woman who is mean to her mother-in-law. We're we're not going to have a lot of daughters-in-law still alive in the country. Yeah, that that uh, really is for the goodwill of the country, but not the criminal justice system. No, no, no. So what is interesting is that uh, Ramandeep's um, accomplice here, her former lover, obviously, right? Gupreet Singh, the man who slit the throat, he was sentenced to life in prison and he was spared death. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that really is. And, and I guess what the court is doing is saying, 
he was working under the direction of her. So in essence, to use the old ritual crime days where religious leaders would have someone else commit a homicide, this person is the voice of reason and planning, but this person gets to be the arm of it to do the dirty work. The two boys are living in London with their paternal uncle, so their father's brother. Very interesting that the boys are being raised by the father's side of the family. It's just a sad story. I mean, it is a tragic, tragic story, but I can't wait to hear what you all think about the judge's sentence. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is out of Austin, Texas, and it is one that we have been watching from the very beginning here on the podcast. It is finally going to trial. This is the case of the pro-cycling love triangle that ended in murder. The jury was picked on Monday for the trial of Caitlin Armstrong, who is 36 years old. She's accused of killing professional cyclist Anna Mariah Moe, she's referred to as Moe, Wilson, who was 25 at the time. Now, when she was shot dead, when Mo was killed on May 11th, uh, 2022, this all occurred in Austin. She didn't live there. Mo came in for a race. So Mo briefly dated Caitlin's boyfriend, Colin Strickland, who is also a professional cyclist. So here you have the love triangle. Uh, you have Colin, who's a professional cyclist, who is in a relationship with Caitlin, who is a yoga instructor. And then he uh, meets Mo at a time when he and Caitlin are broken up for something like two weeks. They have an affair. He continues to communicate with him. There's some with her that there's some question as to whether the relationship continued. And at the end of the day, you have Caitlin, who is very angry, and police and prosecutors are saying she had the motive. She was uh, betrayed. Um, they, they're painting her out to, to have stalked Mo and to have planned this because in Caitlin's eyes, according to prosecutors, Mo was her rival. So the, the case, the jury was selected on Monday. Today, we had opening arguments. And, you know, it, opening arguments to me are always fascinating because it's literally like two radically different views of what happened. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, I always say. Yeah, this this one's going to be an interesting one because cameras aren't allowed in the courtroom. So we're we're not going to get to see. We're going to have to rely on what the reporters are releasing. But uh, this one looks like it's heating up already. Oh yeah, it was getting it was getting a bit testy there, even just in opening statements. Yes, it really was. testy. Um, you know, the the crime is this. This is the allegation that um, Caitlin allegedly schemed to kill off her rival. You know, but in doing so, twice Caitlin 
has evaded authorities. The first time after the cyclist is killed, Caitlin disappears and there's like an international manhunt for her. And then literally days before this trial is supposed to begin, Caitlin slips out of custody at a doctor's appointment off site from the jail. Is that unbelievable? And she takes off and runs. Yeah, and watching the video, I mean, gosh, obviously there was a terrible breakdown in security there. But um, I'm, I'm still kind of scratching my head over the fact that they acknowledge that they're watching her work out aggressively for months as this thing is coming to a head and that she is claiming she has an injury, somehow working through the injury, but she needs to go to a doctor. And, uh, of course, uh, they they drop their guard and, and she almost gets away. She almost got away. She was so clever because, that's right, she was working crazily, right, exercising at the jail facility, and they're watching her. She claims to get this injury, and she convinces the the sheriff and, and the, you know, the custodians there at the jail that they can't put the leg change or the leg irons on her because it's a leg injury, and they're taking her to a doctor off-site to be treated for this injury. She was so clever, she knew that she needed uh, not to have the leg chains in order to run away. So once she gets in there into the doctor's visit, I guess the, you know, security doesn't go in with her (laughs) because she has rights. (laughs) And uh, so she manages to get, um, you know, they wear certain states literally have the striped uh, jail outfits and in Texas, they have the stripes. And if you've, and if you're from another state and then you're visiting and all of a sudden you see literally what's like a chain gang, you're like, oh my God, is this the 1950s and where is Johnny Cash singing? You know, I, I remember being at a courthouse in Texas, looking out the window and thinking, am I seeing this correctly? And you know, other states have orange jumpsuits. I'm like, you know, it's just, it's something very dramatic that many states no longer have, but Texas does. So she was wearing her thermals underneath so you could you i think you could be running down a street in your like long john thermals and i don't think anyone would think anything of it not anymore you're right no so she was very clever that way she manages um the authorities say this is based on court records that they had found like a pin and a few other things in her cell after they finally captured her uh, that indicated to them that she had come up with a way to get out of her handcuffs because i guess they left the handcuffs on at some point i'm it's there's a little bit is murky here but she manages to get out of her handcuffs and then she takes um her prison garb off and that's when she runs and she'd been training for months so she ran like lightning Trying to scale the six-foot fence. Um, the, The cops are trying to, like, grab her foot. They manage to grab her. She tumbles down. They capture her. They've now charged her, you know, with with this. And, and the judge ruled this escape could be introduced into her current murder trial. And they talked about it today. They talked about it today at um, opening yeah. statements. Yeah. And, and, and boy, that's a that's going to be a tough hill to climb because she can go in and say, look, I was just freaking out because I've been wrongly accused and I needed to escape. 
but <clears throat> she's she's needed to escape apparently since she got incarcerated because she's been working out and planning it. And I think they'll introduce, like you say, evidence that suggests that she had a plan in place. I wonder if there was an accomplice in place to pick her up on the other side of that wall. Uh, it makes you wonder all kinds of things. But it goes back to the amount of sophistication that this individual has had from point A to through to today when we're walking into court. She is a slippery one. She is a slippery one. So um, I want to play some clips from today's opening statements, and then we'll get into the details of the case. So let's start with the prosecution and then hear from the defense. The last thing Mo did on this earth was scream in terror. And you hear those screams. There's a surveillance counter with an audio portion to it. We'll play that for you. And you'll hear those screams. Those screams are followed by <laughs> two gunshots. One to the front of the head, one to the side of the head that hits the index finger as it passes. And the state just discussed with you what you will see, what you will hear about, what you will hear throughout the course of this trial. But I want to talk to you about what you didn't hear about. What you didn't hear about. You didn't hear that not one witness saw Caitlin Armstrong allegedly commit this murder. Not one, because there isn't one. You won't hear, and you didn't hear, about any camera footage showing Caitlin Armstrong at the scene of this shooting. Despite there being tons of cameras in the area, and you heard opening statements about all the cameras that were in the immediate vicinity of the scene of that shooting, not one captures Caitlin Armstrong at that scene. Mike, for me, the most chilling thing that I heard today in the opening statements, the prosecutor said that security cameras that had audio capabilities picked up Moe's screams as she was being shot dead and that they're going to play her screams for the jury as if preparing and bracing the jury for what you are about to hear and see in this trial. Yeah, I don't think people have any idea what court officers and jurists and the people who are going to choose to sit in this trial to watch and observe uh, are going to experience and feel. It is horrendous when these cases are played out and, and the evidence comes to light. And it really points to the fact that maybe it made good sense that the judge said, I'll let a camera uh, do your opening statements, but I'm not gonna let it just show all the evidence. And we've seen in a number of trials that have been going on recently where they prevent us in the public from seeing what's visualized for the court and for the jury. But uh, murder is an ugly business, and it is going to be graphic and disappointing uh, 
for anyone who's there, I think you can't shoot someone and not have a horrendous sight, especially when those are gunshots to the face or the head and the chest. Yes, it's a gruesome crime scene. A young life has been taken. Uh, it's just, it's, it's very sad. All these cases, they're just tremendously sad because of the amount of loss, the loss of human life. Let's get back to the details and the history of the three people involved in this triangle. So Caitlin Armstrong and Colin Strickland began dating back in 2019. That was three years before the murder. So for about two weeks in October of 2021, the couple broke up. So in this two-week breakup pause, that's when Colin meets Mo Wilson, who's another professional cyclist, and the two date briefly. Okay, now, Mo and Colin had a lot in common because of the professional cycling. And keep in mind that Caitlin was very athletic. Clearly, the woman, like, bolted uh, recently. She's escaped twice. Um, very, She's very fit. Um, she's a yoga instructor. And the prosecution and police have made a big deal about the fact that Caitlin was jealous and that she had tried to go cycling with her boyfriend Colin but Colin never wanted to go with Caitlin because she slowed him down okay understandable the man is a professional you know they're just I don't know if you were dating a professional tennis player and you were an amateur tennis player would you think that your professional partner would really want to play with you I don't know I you know one's work one is work it's, I don't know. But again, it's all about the prosecution painting Caitlin as being incredibly jealous, which I think is fairly accurate. So then Colin and Caitlin get back together. They move in. And at the time of Moe's murder, they were living together. Moe did not live in Texas. So the triggering event here is Moe comes into town for a race that Colin's going to be in. And that is when police say Caitlin comes undone. Okay, we've talked about this a lot in Love Triangles. There, there are two things here that, that I just, human behavior again, that I want to discuss. Two things. When someone in a Love Triangle feels betrayed and goes after someone, they go one of two ways. They either try to harm the, the one that they're in the relationship with, right? The one who's cheating on them, or they go after the other person who has nothing to do with them. And in this case, authorities say Caitlin, rather than having it out with Colin, decides just to eliminate the other woman. It's always so fascinating to me. Like this, this just blows my mind, Anna, how it happens over and over again. The person that's hurting you isn't the one that you're focusing your aggression on. You're focusing it on this other individual who may or may not even know of your relationship or the state of your relationship. And uh, how we end up seeing over and again, the predator focusing on that offshoot individual rather than the person they're connected with who's violated their trust and their relationship is beyond me. It's always interesting to me how people handle these problems. And I always say murder is not a problem-solving solution. This is not going to fix yeah, whatever is going do. on in your relationship. Getting rid of this woman in this horrific manner is not going to make things better. Clearly, clearly, because one woman is dead 
Another woman is sitting in jail awaiting a murder trial, right? And to hear her sentence, how is this improving anything? You think Colin is going to get back together with you after all this, even if you're you're deemed innocent by a jury? Please. <laughs> Let's be real here. So yeah. I, I never, I never, ever understand that. However, however, Colin, apparently, police believe that he was still in a relationship with Mo and that he had placed her contact information in his phone under a different name. So as Caitlin, his partner, could not find him, find her information in the phone. Now, keep in mind that it was brought out today in trial that Caitlin and Colin had a business together. They shared an, um, an iPad. And the prosecution is saying because of sharing that iPad, she had access to the cloud. She had access to all his text messages, his emails. And so they're portraying her as a woman who is out there trying to get all the information and is, you know, literally stalking her partner to figure out what in the world is going on. Well, on the night that Mo is murdered, she had spent the afternoon with Colin, they went swimming, then they went to dinner. And when Caitlin was texting her boyfriend to ask where he was, he was deceptive. He lied about where he was and what he was doing. And then on top of it, you know, when he finally gets home and then Caitlin finally gets home that night, he's asking her, hey, you wanna go grab dinner? The man's just had dinner with another woman. So if she knows all of this, which she did based on her stalking him, you are only further infuri infuriating her, right? Uh, no, I mean, I'm sure he didn't think that she was going to get out and allegedly kill someone, but. No, you're, you're right. You're right. And there's a big difference between saying, hey, I had a business meeting with Mo. I know that you don't like Mo, but it was really important because this is my profession and and that's what I do. Um, but I don't know many business meetings that involve going swimming and dinner together. At least I've I've, uh, I've been married 46 years now, so it's been a while since I dated. But it doesn't seem like the, the normal business meeting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So again, love triangles, the, the very, very dangerous things, very dangerous. So on the day that Mo was murdered, this is May 10th, as we've said, you know, she uh, went swimming with Colin, then went to dinner. By 8.36, Mo returns to this home. She's staying with a friend of hers. There's a keypad. She has a unique code. And so police say based on that and her phone, they know what time she got into the residence. 8.36. A minute later, 8.37, security footage, this is according to um, prosecutors, catches what they believe is Caitlin's Jeep outside. Now, the defense has already said today in opening arguments, they're like, well, you may see the Jeep, but you don't see Caitlin. And the defense is saying, you cannot put Caitlin at the scene. Prosecution's going to argue that between phone surveillance. Um, they say that they have DNA evidence that there was Caitlin's DNA on the handlebars and the seat of Moe's bicycle 
which had been tossed and found near the home where she was staying. So again, that's the evidence that prosecutors say they're going to present. And the defense is saying, well, look, you've got a lot of security cameras here, right? So why don't we physically see Caitlin? That's what they're saying. Who knows until trial, you know, this is all presented at trial. So by the time Caitlin returns home to the home that she shares with Colin, it is 921 and Colin is home waiting for her. That's when he says, hey, you want to go grab a bite to eat? Mm-hmm. Um, about 10 p.m., the actual owner of the home returns. This is where Mo is staying. The door is unlocked. Nothing appears to be missing, except later they find out her bicycle is missing. Mo is found bleeding in the bathroom. Now, prosecutors say that when the friend walked in and saw Mo on the ground, they first like saw a leg. So they thought that she was stretching. Like the initial feeling was, oh my God, she must be stretching, getting ready for tomorrow's race. But that was not the case. She had been shot several times. And then, you know, 911 is called and Mo cannot be saved. Mo cannot be saved. So the way police backtrack everything, you know, they want to know who, who Mo was with, and that was Colin. Um, Colin, his GPS, his phone, has him at his home at the time that they believe that she's murdered because he had a motorcycle and dropped Mo off at the home that she was staying, and then he went home. So they're able to figure all this out. Why Caitlin... And really, Colin become a little bit suspicious is because of that Jeep. That Jeep is registered to their home, to the home that um, Caitlin and Colin share. So this is where things get even more interesting. They, police, of course, interview Colin as the last person to have seen her alive. But then they interview Caitlin, but they pick Caitlin up on an unrelated old warrant. They pick her up, question her, and then because there is an issue with the warrant, it's either not valid or there's a technicality, they say to Caitlin, okay, you're free to go. So Mike, from your perspective as a former police officer, because it came up today in opening arguments and I thought was so interesting, the defense is saying, so what she went to Costa Rica? They're saying she was told you're free to go. Therefore, you can go anywhere you want. You haven't been charged. You haven't been warned. But, you know, ultimately, she is the person that they're looking for. So how how do you think a jury is going to look at this? Was it suspicious for her to take off? I mean, there's a lot of other stuff we're going to get to about what happened in Costa Rica. But what what do you make of this? Well, from an investigative standpoint, I think, and hopefully from the prosecution's presentation of this, you have to prove that, or at least present, that these were uh, motions to evade any kind of responsibility for this thing. And and so, number one, you're going to be able to tie things together, like some of the forensics you've talked about, the fact that they recover a weapon later and it, it matches up, those kinds of things. But once you're talking to her, some people are frustrated because law enforcement let her go on the warrant and didn't just charge her right then if they had a feeling. Well, you, you, you know how difficult that is because if you move too quickly, you could be in a position where you have to either drop charges and kind of regroup, or you might lose the entire thing altogether. So you've got to move in a really 
um, expeditious but judicious way. And so the fact that they did that, I'm wondering if it could be even played out that they wanted to use that warrant, knowing it's not very good, to question her, to have a little deeper conversation, turn up the heat a little bit, and then watch her. The problem is they didn't watch her because she she boards a plane to Houston. She jumps on a different plane from Houston. And before that, I got to mention, she puts her car up for sale the immediate next day and takes cash for that, gets that cash and starts putting together this escape plan where she then goes to Houston. From Houston, she goes, I think, to Newark, if I remember right. And then she makes her way up through the woods to a sister who miraculously ends up being the same passport that she uses to then fly to Costa Rica. So I think you start building on from this thing the fact that she's bouncing from from uh, location to location. I I suspect she could have flown from Austin to Costa Rica. I suspect she could have flown from Houston to Costa Rica if she was going on vacation and just getting a little getaway. She certainly could have from Newark, but then she does it on a cheap airline from, from JFK or I think from LaGuardia is where she actually ends up taking the jump. But all of that is building stones to separate herself from this mess that's occurring down in Austin, Texas. And that's what I'd be pushing if I were the prosecution. This says suggesting she's trying to get away from this thing and anything to do with it. Especially because U.S. Marshals say she used her sister's passport to get out of the country. Exactly. And then how many people go to Costa Rica to change their identity in the way they look? Well, you know, we can all use a little tune-up every once in a while, but according to the prosecution, she had plastic surgery while she was on the run. And the prosecution said today they're going to show the jury the before and after photos taken by the plastic surgeon in Costa Rica to show you how she changed her appearance and she also darkened her hair significantly. She was under an assumed name. So no, this is not sounding like a little vacation that, you know, it's a very stressful situation right now in Texas and I'm going to take a little trip to Costa Rica. No, it is sounding like someone who is running and hiding from authorities. I just thought it was fascinating that the prosec- that the defense is saying, no, 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 this is just a little trip she planned. Just, just a, little, a trip. little side trip. Just a little trip. She was just under a, a lot of stress. She's under stress. The yoga teacher needed to relax. So, yeah, I mean, she sold her car for $12,000. I mean, this is the day after she is interrogated by the police on that other warrant. Yeah. And she's gone. She has the money. And I think um, the plastic surgery, there was a receipt that was found that was for $6,000. So half of her car money went to her face. And then the remainder was, I guess, her, um, you know, money to live on. Caitlin was on the run for 40 days. Marshall's found her on June 29th of 2022 in a hostel in Santa Teresa Beach. She was finally brought back to the United States and to Texas. Now, she has the entire time maintained her innocence. She has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, and she has been held the entire time on a $3.5 million bond since her arrest, except for, you know, a few days before trial when she decides to go for a marathon run away from the authorities while at the doctor's office. She's amazing. Physical therapy. That was physical therapy. She's fascinating this one what a slippery one so on october 11th is when she makes her big escape from the doctor's office and uh you know 
while she's at this phony baloney <laughs> doctor's visit, she takes off. It's amazing. Amazing. So Caitlin is not only facing the murder charge, but also this charge for bolting, which is a charge of escape causing bodily injury. And so that will be a, a separate case that she will have to deal with. Now, according to the Daily Mail, prior to Caitlin's escape, prosecutors offered her a plea deal. Fascinating. Okay. Wow. According to the Daily Mail's reporting, the plea deal would have shaved years off of her sentence. Allegedly, we're hearing, based on their reporting, that the plea deal would have allowed Caitlin to exit in her 50s or 60s. She denied. She said no. She rejects the plea deal. And now she's facing murder one, which if which if she is convicted, she could face the possibility of life in prison without parole. She's taking her chances. This is a woman who clearly believes in taking chances. So I think she's just like, you know, she's totally sticking to it. Um, it's it's going to be a very interesting case. We're going to watch it. And um, the question is, will Caitlin take the stand? Makes you, makes you wonder, doesn't it? And, and I go back to this idea that the prosecution offered a plea negotiation. They wouldn't do that, I don't believe, without uh, Mo's family agreeing to that up front to avoid having this horrendous homicide discussed and some of the dynamics discussed. And and gosh, I wish they could have figured something out. I mean, everybody wants this mega pound of, of salt when we have these cases, but there's a lot more uh, victims in this thing than just Mo Wilson now. But uh, now this idea of whether she would take the stand and you see this level of arrogance and this fact that that I'm going to take this thing head on. And this is one that could surprise us by taking the sand. We've certainly seen that in a few big cases lately. Agreed. Not always the wisest decision. I always say if you can truly explain the things that don't make sense to the jury, well, it's a crapshoot and maybe take it. But if you can't, if you absolutely can't explain these these giant holes, then you probably shouldn't take the stand. You should just take your chances and see if there's someone on the jury who's like, I'm not sure about the evidence. Yeah. And, you know, there's such a a feeling right now of distrust in government and everything else. I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm seeing this happen in defense strategies in a number of areas where uh, they're really going after the, the integrity of the investigation. And uh, maybe that is an angle, because like you say, you only need to get a few people to agree that there's question in this thing. Uh, but uh, gosh, there just seems to be such a distrust right now in the judicial process that that, that could be an angle. Taking the stand, I would think her uh, defense attorneys would be trying to sit on top of her to keep her from doing that. And to keep her from escaping. I mean, <laughs> twofold. <laughs> Twofold with this one. That's All true. Right. Court security could be out rather intense on this one, couldn't it? Yeah. We'll be watching yeah. this case. 
it is time for our comments section. Now, these are the cases that you all are talking about on social media, but today we have a special guest and I am like so crazy excited. Not only is Will, our producer, joining us, but we have one of you, one of our listeners joining us. Yay, I'm so excited, I can't believe it. We said that when we hit 5 million subscribers that we would love to have one of you join us on the podcast to have a discussion about crime and it is finally happening. Everyone, please welcome Nicole Freevold from Boston. Nicole, now when you wrote to me, you said that you are a semi-professional badminton player and you listen to us when you're going to practice. Yes. Um, well, first of all, Anna, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of containing my excitement, but I am I am freaking out on the inside. I can promise <laughs> you that. Um yeah, I know, because when you were first speaking about, um, you know, we love to hear about how you listen to our podcast. And I'm like, I feel like that's probably a pretty uncommon thing to get someone who's training for badminton and listening to it on the car ride. So <laughs> just I. Yeah, so true. I was like, really, a professional badminton <laughs> player. You like you go into competitions even internationally. Like I'm like, wow, you have elevated our fan base to like professional status here. I don't know about, well, you already have 5 million subscribers, so I think you did that yourself. <laughs> I just, now, just a little bit more about you. I feel like we're like on Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune where we bring on the contestant. Let's hear a little bit more about Nicole, you know, <laughs> before we get um, to our, our crime in the comment section. So Nicole, you also work at a law firm? Correct, yes. Okay. And you, do you want to go into law school? You want to go to law school? What do you want to do? Yeah. It's funny that you ask. So I, I currently am a legal assistant at the law office of Matthew Peterson. Um, that's a firm in Boston. Uh, we do family immigration and, uh, mostly we do criminal defense. Um, and it's funny that you ask about law school. I just got my LSAT score back this morning. Yes. Um, and I'm very happy with my score at all transparency. So I plan on applying for law school for the fall of 2024. Oh my gosh, this oh, is so exciting. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. And I'm just, I know we're going to get to the case, but I'm just, so Nicole, like really, I'm just, Thank you for listening to us. I so appreciate it. But like why this podcast over the, like, there's so many great podcasts out there. So I do listen to other podcasts here and there, but I always, I, I really do always come back to True Crime Daily. First of all, Anna, I think you're hysterical. Um, <laughs> I just, I just think you're so funny. Um, also, I love your guests on the show. They all just have such different perspectives that I love hearing about. And it's funny, Anna, I feel like, when I'm thinking of a question or I'm like, why would they do this? Or I have some sort of question in my head. You ask it immediately after I'm thinking it. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I get my question answered immediately after I've thought it. Um, so I just, I just, I love your guests. I love you. And I just, I just think it's a great program. That's so good to hear. Thank you, Nicole. You're so, look at this. My microphone is shaking. It's so excited. <laughs> it's so happy. It's trembling with joy. <laughs> okay. And, and Mike, I mean, this is great. I mean, Mike King is like a legend in crime solving and you just get to be on the same program with him. I'm, this is so cool. Okay. So we're going to let Will take over now. Everyone, the comment section will begin now. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So this case, we have uh, an alleged bad trip leading to a near mile high disaster. This case comes out of Portland, Oregon, where a 44 year old off duty pilot was arrested on over 160 charges. A lot of charges here after he allegedly attempted to cut power to the plane's engines mid flight and was deemed a security risk, which I feel like. Yeah, bare minimum. Yes. If you're if you're trying to shut down the the power to the engines, it's probably a security risk. Uh, so this all occurred on October 22nd on a flight that was boarding in Everett, Washington, actually, and it was headed for San Francisco. The suspect here is Joseph Emerson. Now he has been a pilot for over 22 years, experienced guy here, and he was off duty. Got to note that he was off duty during the boarding of the flight. He was allowed to join the departure as a passenger, but they seated him in the in the jump seat, one of those little jump seats in the flight deck. Um, so he's in there, you know, with the with the first assistant and the captain, and all that. Um, now, according to Alaska Airlines, which is the, the flight where this took place, nobody could tell if if he was impaired in any way. It, it didn't seem like outwardly he was he anything was going on there. Not that they could detect. But at some point during the flight, Joseph starts not having a very good time. Now, according to Joseph's wife, he had been kind of struggling with depression and anxiety lately. Apparently, it got worse every year around the anniversary of like a friend's death, which had just mm. occurred. Um, and I, this is like just a side note here. Apparently, and this is uh, I, I read this in a Portland report, getting help for mental health struggles for pilots can be kind of difficult. They're required to basically self-report any physical or mental ailments. And sometimes like going to a therapy or reporting a mental health event can get a pilot suspended. So kind of oh. weird thing going on there. But okay. there are some other compounding factors that kind of make this little you know a, 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 maybe a little bit more culpability um so during the flight he you know joseph told later told investigators he was extremely depressed he might have even said i'm not okay while in the cockpit uh and he said uh, allegedly said that the pilots he thought they weren't really paying attention to what was going on so he's really kind of freaking out here and he goes to an ex like a very extreme. He tries to engage the emergency fire handle for the engine. Now, apparently this handle, it, it shuts off fuel to the engine. In case of a fire, it'll shut off any fuel, completely disabling the engine. Um, and at this point, uh, the, the, the captain and the first officer, they snap to attention. They're able to reset the fire handle, uh, which prevented the, the the disruption of of anything happening in the engine and joseph later apparently told investigators that he pulled both emergency shutoff handles because he thought he was dreaming and he wanted to wake up not great there um all of right all so, the things to focus on if you think you're having a dream is the emergency handle that's going to force the plane to like glide down really that's yeah. all that's the one thing he is going to bring him out of his dream <laughs> well and i feel like when you're having a when you're having a even in a dream like that, that's not like my first instinct, right? Like, I, I don't know if you've ever had, you know, a bad dream on a flight or in, in school or whatever. It's not like, I, I don't never think of like pulling the fire alarm or like something yeah. like that is going to make it stop, you know? We do cover a lot of dreams on here, dreams and fast food. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so because of this, uh, the flight attendants were forced to restrain Joseph here. Uh, they put him in wrist restraints, uh, which, you know, they have those little like zip tie handcuff things. And then they have to like belt him in a in a different jump seat. This one's at the back of the plane. Uh, now, reportedly, things continue to escalate here. Uh, Joseph reportedly tried to open the emergency exit before he was again stopped by a crew member. Was um, that another dream? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. That one actually, to me, makes a little bit more sense than taking the whole plane down. 
Uh, but I, I, it still wouldn't be my it still wouldn't be my first thought. It still would not be my first thought. Now, okay, because of this disruption, obviously things have gotten very out of hand. The flight is diverted to Portland International Airport. Joseph immediately taken into custody, and this is where things get a little bit worse for Joseph. Like bad dream, mental health episode. I feel like you have a plausible defense there, right, Nicole? I feel like as a criminal defense attorney, there's something you can work with there. Yeah, sure. Uh, but here, uh, he apparently tells investigators that he had not slept in over 40 hours and he had taken mushrooms prior to the incident. According to police, Joseph, the said, mushrooms. <laughs> Joseph said that he had never taken the drug before and was having a nervous breakdown. Well, that's um, probably true. Which, okay. Like, right? Isn't it possible he had a bad reaction to mushrooms? I mean, that's totally plausible. Totally. But like, Rick, I just I have so many questions. So like many what? questions. Like what? Like, like what? What? Uh, so, so first of all, it, it looks like he claimed to have taken the drug 48 hours before that incident. And from my understanding, I really know very little about mushrooms. Oh, come but on, from my understanding, <laughs> from Full transparency. I know very little about mushrooms, but full transparency. I, I just you would have had to take in. You would have had to take so much of that drug for it to still be having effects on your body, from my understanding. Yeah, and there's the no way. No I, one. The fact that no one thought that he was maybe off or something just is confusing to me. Also, I'm just picturing. So I'm kind of a stressful flyer to begin with because I just don't like the turbulence. But to have this going on while I'm in flight as a passenger, oh my I'm God. just trying to picture all of this happening. Oh, <laughs> well, and it's someone who like scared to death. Yeah, I, I feel like it's more, even more scary when it's someone like that was in the in the yes. flight deck, right? right. You're like, oh, my God, how could this be possibly any worse? <laughs> Um, but yeah, for a nervous flyer, Nicole, I mean, that seems terrible. I, I do have some questions about that timeline, though, because he said he hadn't slept for 40 hours, but he had taken the mushrooms 48 hours earlier. So I'm a little confused. Like he took the mushrooms, uh, uh, fall, like uh, whatever. I, he's, he took the mushrooms, fell asleep for eight hours and then was awake. I don't know. I can't really he's understand the timeline. Well. I mean, without bit. question, the man is struggling and he is not well. He is not well. And um, then why was he allowed to fly? I get it. You know, you, you do see that. You'll see people in jumps, jump seats and then you'll see like these extra people in the cockpit. It happens. I guess you're allowed if you're a pilot, right, to fly in there. But maybe maybe this is something that the that the airlines should change their policy on. Maybe we should well, only have people focused on the flight inside the cockpit. That's all. Yeah. That's just a theory. Just a thought, tossing it out there. Well, Mike, I mean, you did study psychology. I mean, if one of your colleagues, he's this guy's been a pilot for 21 years, asked to hop on the plane, like reasonably, I mean, you have no reason to believe that something like this could ever occur. Yeah, um, I, 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 I'm really, I, on this particular case, I think a couple of things really come to the surface for me. One is the um, self a helpline doesn't seem to be working. Yeah. And there's got to be a way that people in a profession can say I'm struggling and I have a problem and not feel that their job is going to be in jeopardy as they go through that process. And many organizations have that through their employee assistance program. Um, the fact that they allow pilots up into the front doesn't bother me at all. Uh, it's nice to have another set of eyes there. I don't know that you could ever create some kind of a quick check system to say this person's sane so we're letting them through the door otherwise i guess it goes back to the same thing that stops law enforcement all the time and that would be called profiling and we just don't profile people uh, the, the the third part of this is that i keep thinking about is that 
uh, thankfully, law enforcement doesn't have to make decisions about the emotional state of somebody or something else. They have elements of crime. And if those elements are met, then you charge someone and you hand it over to a prosecutor or you, you you arrest them. You hand it over to a prosecutor to charge them and then over to a court to adjudicate that thing and try to bring in expert witnesses to say it's good or it's bad. But this whole thing brings up a terrifying situation for people who are sitting in the in the in the airplane just wanting to get to san francisco and uh and that that's the part i keep going back to and i got one last thing to say and that is i gotta hear a bostonian accent if i'm gonna listen to a girl from boston <laughs> um have yad that's the best i got i <laughs> fortunately i don't have a boston accent because people would be saying stuff to me all the time but the, i i I guess I'm lucky in that way, maybe. Okay. Is that where you Nicole, grew up as well? Did you grow up there? Uh, I'm from Marblehead. Okay. Um, so it's a small coastal town. Yeah, still Massachusetts. It's a small coastal town about 45 minutes from Boston. <laughs> you know, my my son says that accents are going away. My son's 24. And, he's, and, and he lives in New York. And I'm always curious about, like, he says he doesn't hear that that incredible New York accent as much as let's say you would have when I was growing up there or like how some of my friends talk or how like I can sound if I get angry, you know, and the accent comes out. I find that interesting because I mean, do you see that among your friends that they don't have the Boston accent? Like in New York, it seems to be going away. Yeah. That's so funny. I know. I, I don't, necessarily think about it but mm -hmm. yeah i mean none of my friends have boston boston accents mm -hmm. completely <laughs> derailed us from true crime Wait, i'm so I know, sorry, I'm sorry. No, we love it that's what this <laughs> that's what this section is all about <laughs> what are we tackling next in world problems <laughs> and issues in pop culture Oh my gosh. Okay, well I'm sorry. Handing it back to you. Go on. <laughs> all right. All right. Um so Getting back to the passengers, all got rerouted on a new flight, continued their respective journeys without incident. Things were not as lucky for Joseph here. Uh, he has been booked on 83 counts of attempted murder and 83 counts of reckless endangerment, along with one count of endangering an aircraft. Uh, and there might be some additional federal things that could happen as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot there. Unclear what the situation is going to be um, or... At the very least, he's been suspended uh, indefinitely from Alaska Airlines. And, you know, we'll see how this whole thing progresses. Um, 83 counts of a attempted murder, though. That Nicole, is serious. That, that seems like a lot. What, what do you what do you think you're looking at there? That's probably life. I know that's funny. I was thinking, what is he going to get like 83 counts of a life sentence? I just I can't even imagine the kind of time he's facing. I'm assuming I mean. I don't know if it would be the smartest thing to go forward with a trial. I'm assuming maybe he'll take a plea of some sort. I just, mm -hmm. I can't imagine what time he's facing. Also, and get uh, one him thing help. I did. Yes, absolutely. And that's kind of what I was going to touch on. Um, so I actually, I'm definitely not as qualified as Mike, but um, I actually studied psychology um, at my undergrad degree. Um, and so I find it a little bit worrisome that these um, airlines are, you know, trying to promote healthy mental health yet not really saying okay well you can come and report uh, mental health issues to us without getting any ramifications in terms of you know job loss or anything like that so that's i mean that would deter anyone from reporting themselves in my opinion it yeah is. totally and like you know depression and anxiety like very serious but very. definitely 
diff, you know, I, not so incapacitating that you couldn't fly a plane. Right. Oh, it is tragic. It is. But it's also very frightening. The fact that he could have killed everyone on that plane. I agree with you, Nicole. I don't see him serving all those life sentences. I think this will be mitigated, I'm sure, as a first offense. I mean, it's serious. And he must, he must, you know, pay for this. But I think also getting him help is going to be, you know, crucial at this point. Wow. Yeah, to totally clean employment record too. Like not, you know, that no history or anything that 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 I saw from any report that like failed drug tests. He had, you know, completed all trainings and updates on safety and everything. Never really an issue before. So unfortunate situation. Uh, people had a lot to say about this one. Lucky S actually kind of gave some uh, a different sort of insider peek that's a little scarier. Uh, they said many years ago I worked for a toxicology lab that did drug testing for major airlines. And it freaked me out how many positive tests we got back oh, on pilots. No. Um, yeah. Right. Don't, oh. don't you remember there was like a period of time though where there there was like there was like a couple like a captain. Yeah, drunk pilots. Like, yeah, there were a lot of drunk pilot situations. Yeah. Yeah. Not, okay, not you good. guys are making me never want to fly again. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh you're gosh. increasing yeah, sorry. No, you're anxiety. Already, you're already <laughs> not a good flyer. Oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Adam B said, didn't think we needed a PSA to not take mushrooms before a flight, but here we are. I, I, I think that's I, that's where I would lean, you know, pilot or not. It's 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 not the right environment. It's it's not the best environment, especially if it's your first time. I don't know it's what like would tell you. Trip. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what would tell trip, you to be not like. Not one on a plane. Yeah, oh, that's right? a good pun. That was a Thank good you. one. I've been Thank trying you. to figure out one. That's good. <laughs> Um, it, you know, some people are much like Nicole, like, like we brought up, like people are very confused about like if if this timeline is correct, that they were taken 48 hours before. I don't understand how it all works out, but it matters not said if anybody has ever had a mushroom trip last 48 hours, please post where you bought those mushrooms and the phone number <laughs> of the guy, um, which great. Don't don't do it in our comments section, though. I don't I, I don't want I don't, I don't want us to be to tie to, to any of that. Um, Mike's going to report us. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that's the last thing we need. Um, Name and Shames uh, is ready for the movie adaptation of this. They said from the producers of Cocaine Bear, mushrooms on a plane, right? Um, <laughs> Snakes then, on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, our last comment uh, uh, is, is a reference to Friday, one of my favorite films. Charles M. said, how the heck you go and get fired on your day off? This is one way to do it. Um, this is one way to do it. Wow. Well, this has been quite a treat, quite a comment section. Oh, Nicole, it's been such a pleasure. I just have to ask you yeah. about your badminton. So like, how often are you in these competitive badminton competitions? Yeah, so um, I train about five or six days a week currently. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would probably say every Every few months I attend a tournament. Um, they're kind of sporadic. There's really no off season. Did you play badminton in college as well? Or is this something you've done aside from school? Yeah, this is something that I did outside of school. I actually began training when I was about 11 or 12. Wow. Um, and I've been training since then. That's Competitively. Fantastic. Yeah, yes. I, I played when I was Thank 11 you. and 12 also, but somehow my career didn't go the same way that yours did in badminton. <laughs> I do love badminton, though. I mean, this it's is a fun sport, right? Isn't it? It's totally yeah. I used to I used to play it in front of the house on the street with my son. Obviously, no nets, nothing. But it was just like such an easy thing to do. I've always loved badminton. Like, it's it's very cool. Cool. I think it's like one of the coolest racket sports. 
Yeah, do you feel like you're being, you know, overshadowed by this whole pickleball thing? Oh, yes. My mother is obsessed with pickleball. And I, I'm like, you traitor, because she used to play badminton. And then pickleball, I mean, it, I will say pickleball is pretty fun. But my mother plays like twice a day. She's crazy. Oh, I'm my. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> So funny, so funny. You know what, let's just do a different kind of goodbye this time. Usually, like we say goodbye to Will at this point, but why don't you all stay? We're gonna do our goodbyes now, because I don't wanna say goodbye to you. I'm just so happy that you all are here. Uh, Nicole, this has been um, just a total pleasure meeting you. Um, thank you so much for reaching out. And you all know that I try and read your comments, your emails or your DMs. I can't keep up with everybody, but I do the best that I can. She does a great job though. I do, I do. And we have such a great community on YouTube. That's what I love. You know, I just love so many times someone will make a comment and I'll be like, oh my God, how did I miss that? You know, like something so glaring. And, and so I, I just love to read your comments. Mike, it's always a pleasure having you on. Where can people find you, follow you, all that good stuff, because you're so busy? Always great to be with you, and Nicole, fun to meet you on here. Uh, love being with Will. Uh, you can just find me at, at Profiling Evil, one word with the at sign, no, not AT, and that'll get you YouTube and the podcasts. And, and please come over and visit us, but thanks again, Anna. I just love every time I come on. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. We always learn something from you. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N on all the socials. You can subscribe <laughs> to our YouTube channel, uh, to our 5 million strong crime family. We would love that. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. As I say, Will, it's so 1990s. I don't understand this whole newsletter. How do we still have know. a newsletter? Can you explain this to me? What, I don't know, what I just do it every week. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. And does like anybody read this newsletter? They do actually. It has like a really good, it has like a 35 plus percent open rate, which is really good. What if does that mean? If, if, you're into, you? if you're into, if you're into email marketing. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you know something? I have never been sent the, the newsletter. I have no idea what this thing is like. Like well, nobody sign sends up for the Sign up for the list. Go to truecrowddaily.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Come on. It's good stuff every week. <laughs> Maybe I'll learn something. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Okay, so this episode, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcast, uh, we'd love you to join us every week. Okay, as we always say at the end of the program, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and as we always say, don't do crime.